I often tell people I dropped out of high school because I wanted to be a K-pop star, which is true. But it is also true that I was forced to drop out because my parents no longer knew what to do with me. You just heard the voice of Ho Jung Lee, an Asian American author and the writer behind Tiger Rabbit, a new and upcoming book written in response to the spike in hate crimes against Asians because of the pandemic. We've actually been planning this podcast for a while. We started discussing months ago. And eventually, we decided to link her new book with the new highest-rated film on Letterboxd, Move Aside Parasite. We have a new sheriff in town. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once by Daniel Schoenit and Daniel Kwan, affectionately known as the Daniels. In particular, we focus on one aspect of Hojun's life, her troubled relationship with her parents, and how it mirrored the protagonists of Joy and Evelyn from the film. And secondly, I ask Hojun another question. Why do Koreans insist that their country looks like a tiger and not a rabbit? Spoilers ahead. How does it feel? to be so close to publishing this book and and how long did you spend on it i have been working on it since june of 2021 i am actually working with a hybrid publisher new degree press as a part of this book writing and publishing program so it's all completed within a span of around like 10 months max a year and honestly amazing it's very fast. Yeah, I know you took maybe like four to five years to write. That's correct. Yeah, that, um, that's yeah. incredible. I'm actually like, I'm actually stunned. It took 10 months. It it like legitimately took four to five years for me to <laughs> Yeah, the philosophy for the program I did, it was that a manuscript should take no longer the season to write. So even if it's complete garbage, just turn something in at the end of the four months and then revise it. And the, the magic is in the revisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but honestly, because I have not yet held the physical book in my hands, I honestly, it doesn't feel real to me yet. I don't feel like I'm an author. Yeah, and I, I think that's quite a common thought uh, amongst authors. It Because we spend so much time on Word document, just typing it up, like once it's complete, in reality, it's not that much different to what the edition looks like a week ago. You know, it's got a few more full stops, got a few more, a few less grammatical errors. But until you hold it and other people can hold it, it really feels like mission incomplete. Mm-hmm. And the name of your book is Tiger Rabbit, which is a really strange, but also quite like a <laughs> visually aesthetic name. It's like, I don't know, just a combination of tiger and rabbit. And I've been told that that is linked to the shape of the Korean Peninsula. So is that true? And can you explain what it means? Yeah, of course. So there's actually both a historical and personal reasoning behind the name for, okay, the history part. So during Japanese occupation of Korea, Japanese propaganda claimed that the shape of the peninsula resembled a small and harmless rabbit, a prey animal. But when Korea gained independence, we reclaimed our narrative, claiming that, no, we're actually not a small, harmless rabbit, we're a tiger. 
a powerful predator. And I really identified with this concept of being both a tiger and a rabbit at the same time, because I think in my, well, my book is all about Asian American advocacy. And I think that sometimes I am like the powerful, righteous tiger who is able to defend both herself and other people for racial justice. But other times I am just like a meek rabbit who can't protect herself. Yeah. So I try to represent this duality in, in the name, Tiger Rabbit. And I was lucky enough to be one of the beta readers that you recruited, that you spoke to. And I've since got the full PDF. You know, you were kind enough to send that over. But even when you were writing it during the absurdly quick 10-month period, <laughs> you, uh, let me, you know, like give some input, ha have some discussions. And we actually had a, had a discussion, like an hour-long discussion a few months ago on some of these topics. And mm -hmm. the chapter in particular which is really relevant to the film we also want to tie into later on. The chapter you gave me is on family. And mm. if I can remember correctly, please correct me, it's why I don't get along with my parents or something like that. Is that the name of the chapter? <laughs> yeah, the title is Why I Can't Get Along With My Family. There you go. Very close. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we both watched the not together we're in you know you're in america florida and i'm in sydney but we both watched the film everything everywhere all at once that is a, such a confusing title <laughs> we, we watched that film recently and we were discussing like how could we talk about your book and at the same time interweave this film and i think there's actually a lot of crossover so what did you think? What did you think about the film? Yeah. What are your general thoughts about it in general? My general thoughts? So I actually watched the film twice. First, just because I wanted to watch it. And then the second time, because I wanted to be ready to talk about it for this podcast. You did your but research. <laughs> I did my research. But yeah, I remember during my first sitting, just being incredibly confused. I feel like my senses were just constantly being assaulted. It was... Yeah, it was just like a genre mashup. I remember watching like an interview that the directors, the Daniels gave, and they called it a cosmic gumbo, which I think is a very fitting description. Mm -hmm. Did you like it? What are your thoughts? Oh, on oh my goodness. I loved it. I thought it was, I thought it was a phenomenal movie. My thoughts on it were, I liked it. I didn't, I wouldn't say I loved it. Mm -hmm. I did think it was extremely creative and some of the cinematography mm -hmm. was amazing. I guess my only... I guess my main gripe of it was I felt that because it's so absurd for anyone who hasn't mm -hmm. watched it, it is one of the most absurd pieces of cinema that you will <laughs> ever, ever watch. Just re incredibly absurd. And also, as I said before, very creative though. I think the absurdity at times took away from the emotional impact and, and without giving too many spoilers, there's a scene at the end when Evelyn and the daughter having a chat outside i hope you know which scene i'm talking about after the party kind of after the party and mm. yeah that's correct yeah and and then you know it intercuts to and to the audience who hasn't watched it i'm not kidding to a world to a universe where the main character has sausage for fingers <laughs> <laughs> which is both hilarious but at the same time i felt like it prevented me from like feeling really emotionally attached hmm you know i think i actually really liked 
how absurd the film was. I felt like it was really mimicking like the natural movements of life, you know, like we're not always intensely 100% feeling like this one emotion for a really long period of time. Like Mm -hmm. there is a huge range of the emotions that we feel. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Okay. Well, I'm happy to disagree. But (laughs) I think regardless, it is such a, such a good launching pad for some of the ideas, which is very prevalent in your book and to the Asian American. I keep saying American, even though I'm not American, but the Western Mm. Asian community. And one thing I wanted to bring up is this idea, which permeates the entirety of the film. And that is the concept of intergenerational trauma. And there's Mm -hmm. a scene when the main character, Evelyn, who's just basically in charge of, I think it's called a laundromat or laundry mat or something like that. Yeah. Uh, Is it laundry or laundry mat? I think it's laundromat. Okay. Laundromat. Let's go with that. A place where you wash clothing, et cetera, et cetera. She has a flip. she She has a flashback to her as a child. And when she was born and the the doctor, the surgeon pulled her out. There was the comment that I'm sorry, it's a girl. Hmm. And that trauma, that understanding of where you are gender uh, wise, I think leaks into Evelyn's relationship with her daughter, Joy. And that seems to be quite a strong uh, theme in your I mean, just judging by the name of your chapter, why I can't get along with my family, I think there's a lot of crossover. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I did see a lot of crossovers with the film and my personal relationship with my family, I think. In in the film, during that scene you just mentioned, where the doctor says, I'm so sorry, she's a girl, it really set the tone for the rest of her relationship with her father, with Kong Kong. I think Evelyn was just constantly just deeply hurt by her father, especially when 100%. he so easily let her go. Yeah, and she just spent a lifetime seeking after his approval. And that that wound of abandonment caused her to be so incredibly hard on her daughter. It was it was Evelyn herself who created the film's antagonist, Joe Butapaki, in the alpha dimension because she was just striving for actual or striving for absolute perfection within her daughter and mm. that pushed her past her breaking point by the way can yeah, i just say and, for anyone yes. who hasn't watched this film you mentioning jobu jobu tapaki and alphaverse they're like what, <laughs> what what the hell did i just jump into <laughs> um this will make okay it will make sense if you watch the film i also mentioned this to you because it is rated 4.6 on Letterboxd, which has or is it's tied with Parasite or has eclipsed Parasite, which is mm. just one hell of a fit because Parasite is one of my favorite films of all time. It won like four Oscars, you know, amazing piece of work that came out of Korea. Mm-hmm. Huge fan of Bong Joon-ho. And this is, in terms of rating, it's on par with that film. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the idea of abandonment. So as you, as you said, it's clear that Evelyn feels, and rightfully so, feels this sense of abandonment from her, from her family, from her father in particular. But in many ways, is that sort of the opposite of your story? Because if you read the, if you read the book, Tiger Rabbit, if you read the chapter, you talk about how you left 
your parents and flew to Korea, which is, I think you were a teenager at that point, which is one hell Mm -hmm. of a daring act. So do you you feel like you fit into that stereotype? Because couldn't someone argue that you were the one who took the step away? Or do you relate to it because you feel like your parents were unable to understand you? And thus, you know, if we look at the multiverse, et cetera, et cetera, going down the line, you, it resulted in you taking a plane and leaving. I think what made the film honestly a little bit painful to watch was all of the miscommunication between Evelyn and Joel, all their failed attempts at connection, because looking back at my teenage self, I think what I desperately wanted was to be able to connect with my mother. And my mother also wanted to connect with me, but because of cultural barriers, because of language barriers, we just were constantly missing each other. And you use this term, which I think is just so on point because I had feelings of this and I think a lot of minorities have feeling of this when you look towards your parents as a role model or as someone that, who can navigate society you want them to be efficient or well-versed so that you can replicate and walk their footsteps as well and you say something which as I said really I guess I guess I related to it you said that for a while you wanted like a mummy's mum or someone who mm. was who fit or slide into western society the society that you're born into i'm sure you will feel differently if you're born in korea because then your parents would be fully able to navigate the you know the ups and downs of society but you wanted a mummy's mom some a mom mm. who would, and i'm paraphrasing like give you a hug no matter what no matter what you did or always showed interest in your passions because that was what you saw in film and that's what you saw around you so yeah can mm. you just elaborate on that concept or elaborate like do you feel like that's what joy wanted in the film the yeah the term mommy mom i actually took that from michelle's honors autobiography crying in age she is half korean half white her mother was korean and i also saw my relationship with my own mother reflected in michelle's honors book because our mothers were both very like no nonsense like not very expressive in emotion and what what Michelle and what I really, really wanted and what I saw in Joy as well was, yeah, a mommy mom, someone basically a white mother. <laughs> you know, I was always I was always really jealous of like my white family or my white friends' families growing up because it seemed that their mothers just so obviously cared for, loved and pampered their children. And obviously there's like cultural reasons as to why like my own mother didn't raise me that way. Her mother didn't raise her that way. But I was always really jealous of the open affection and the intimacy that was displayed in their families versus mine. I think as a child, comparing my home situation to those of my friends made me realize that in... hmm. Made you realize that your parents are just simply raised to different values and the values that you seek or the values that get reaffirmed in media were not the ones that that were reaffirmed in your household. And that probably resulted in this split identity, which is really confusing for a lot of uh, the children of immigrants or even immigrants themselves. Like, for example, I feel like when I enter my house and when I leave my house, I'm like wearing a different mask. And that sounds really fake in the Western consciousness. Mm. Uh, maybe it sounds fake in the Asian mindset as well. But I feel like I am 
forced oh i need to navigate two different cultural landscapes all the time and how i interact with my even the parents of my white friends is completely different mm-hmm. to how I interact with the parents of my auntie and and maybe as a child you weren't able to to do that you found that that jump between the different worlds quite difficult yeah i think it was jarring and i had a really difficult time adjusting to the difference because i think the difference actually led to a lot of resentment on my part toward my parents because this was a reality that i so desperately wanted that i just didn't get at home yeah not to say that the way that my parents raised me was incorrect or bad in any way but living in a western society where love is just more openly displayed for the most part in the media that we see it made me want a style of communication and expression of love that does not come naturally in asian societies mhm and so just being constantly bombarded with those images and then coming back home to less emotionally expressive parents yeah i i felt i definitely felt a dissonance there mhm and this is something i always advocate which is like putting the foot on what's the quote putting no wearing someone else's shoes or something like that i think that's <laughs> you know i butchered that foot. <laughs> yeah putting your foot someone's shoe some sandals something something <laughs> nike air forces uh-huh. whatever something like that um so taking that quote this idea of being empathetic and walking in someone's shoes that's it walking in someone's shoes mm. how do you think your parents would have felt because they talking about cultural dissonance they came to this country oh, this country being america obviously then don't really understand the rules and they give birth to a a daughter who i guess looks like them but at the same time has these cultural values which are very different so how do you think they struggled and, and do you think they wanted you vice versa to be more of the traditional korean daughter as well I think in general in Korean society that parents tend to be more domineering. We really respect and value the elderly in society and both my parents had been raised in a manner where parents were just never questioned. And I think my grandparents on both sides also tended to be on the stricter side. So on top of Korean culture just naturally emphasizing more obedience in american culture both of my grandparents were a little bit excessive in that and that rubbed off on my parents as well so i guess for my parents with me as a very angsty not dealing with authority authority very well rebellious child was mm-hmm. was quite difficult for them because this is what they had been taught from their parents and they never questioned it and so they tried the same parenting style on me and they just really struggled with it mhm yeah. yeah and i mean what what can they expect like you were born in a society where different values are exaggerated or emphasized and mm-hmm. like you know i i really i i think you do talk about this because later in the chapter you extend a hand towards your parents and you talk about how they were raised and hopefully that garners some sort of some sort of empathy in the audience because then you first you know you talk about your how bad the relationship is and then later on you go like however once i understood you know the sort of lifestyle my my, my dad went through i think you talk about your dad a little more and you talked about how 
he like had nothing to he was hunting frogs at one point with sticks <laughs> and he was like involved in a lot of like protest against the government like a lot of serious stuff which i guess we just, we just have never really experienced once you extend that hand towards them there is this sense of like you know well, that's the their cultural values which they've brought to the the table so do do you have a better relationship with your parents now like what is it like now i think growing up and growing out of unhealthy learned behavior patterns definitely helped me and my relationship with my parents. The hunger part was more my grandparent generation than my parents. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my gra- yeah. That. Yeah, the, my my grandparents were raised during like the Japanese occupation. So my grandparents were traumatized by war and by constant feelings of hunger. And then they in turn raised my mother and my father who lived during the era where Korea was Korean society was fighting for democracy. Mm-hmm. which was a very, very violent struggle. And I've, I've come to think of it honestly as like, you know, like the Maslow's like hierarchy of needs, like like food yes. and like shelter, like emotions were not at the top of their list. They just honestly didn't really have time to process it because they were just so, all they all they focused on was survival, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think it makes sense that in that environment, that they had to suppress their emotions. There's actually this, this concept called Han. And it's it's difficult to fully express in English. There is no and by the way, not to be confused yes. with the with the Chinese ethnicity Han. <laughs> yes. Han is a term that refers to a very specific feeling. And there's there's so much historical context behind it. It's because the history of Korea because the country was so ravaged, it is a mixture of of resentment, of bitterness, of anger and despair, and also the knowledge that this is a feeling that you can't escape. Some some scholars even say that to be Korean is to feel Han. It's like genetic, it's it's our inheritance. Yes, go ahead. And I actually listened to this is completely random. I was listening to a podcast yesterday with Stan Grant who is an Australian Australian Aboriginal man and he he talks about he actually mentions Han even though he's not mm-hmm. Korean and he said that basically what you said this is concept in Korea of like undescribable immeasurable pain and loss and anger and he says and he, and he mentions this concept and he actually talks about something else which he actually mentions this quote, which I think is is really relevant, and uh, I'll say it now. He writes, "For people in other countries, we wear slash carry our history in our bones, whereas in the West, history is something to be left behind. This is because the post Enlightenment liberal West is predicated on the idea of tomorrow and progress. And you talk and you talk about this inheritance." that like mm-hmm. was passed on from your grandparents to your parents and then finally to you. So can can I ask like how do you feel in everyday life? Like do you, how how deep is this anger? And I don't think you actually answered the question, how is your relationship with your parents? <laughs> it it's good now. In the present mm-hmm. moment it is good. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And this anger that I feel, this is actually something I have been working through with my therapist these past few months, but I have come to the realization that the anger that I felt in my relationship with my parents was really a way to protect myself from my feelings of grief and sadness over what I wanted from my parents and was never able to receive. I think, I think realizing that your parents are also human is something that's really difficult to accept. Um, realizing that my parents are also human beings that make mistakes just like me. And I want to honor my desires and what I needed from my parents at the time. But I also have come to accept over time that they just are not able to fully meet those needs. And in the past, when I was younger, this gap caused a lot of intense anger because anger was almost like an easier emotion to hold on to mm -hmm. rather mm -hmm. than feeling the depths of sadness, I think. This is a dark and a very grim sidetrack, but this idea of anger is easier to deal with. I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm just drawing at sticks, but I feel like in the American context, anger and violence is often seen as like sacred. Have you ever heard of the, co the concept of sacred violence? Mm -mm, I haven't. Okay. So this idea of sacred violence is like you can cleanse the land through an act of violence, which is you know, which destroys the evil and then gives rebirth to, to the new or something like that, which is quite, to me, I, I think it's quite a part of the American psyche. You know, like you kill the Indians and then you take the land. Mm. And this that sounds act of super violence, evil. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. But it's the act of combating the other or the evil through violence. And then thus this ushers in like the utopia, like a Lord of the Rings, basically. Mm. I, I feel like this this idea of like, you know, anger is easier to deal with than actually diving into the depths of one's soul that mm -hmm. the first thing i thought of is like school shootings why there's so mm. many school shootings in america i think it's because a lot of young men don't they are lost they don't really understand the the, the new world where the gender dynamics are a little different and etc cetera, etc cetera, the economics of the world and they choose to show their anger through such militant force yeah, it's almost more acceptable to show anger than other emotions in Western culture, I think, especially especially for men, uh, part of macho culture. Something else you talk about is your respect for your dance teacher. And you're talking, you've mentioned multiple times that when you were younger, angsty, rebellious teenager, you didn't have a good relationship <laughs> with your parents. But there was this one person in particular who you really connected with, and she was a dance teacher in Korea, which, yeah, I mean, that's super interesting that you were able to find that parental figure in her. Do you still communicate? Are you still close with her? Actually, I have completely lost touch with Kesem, which is one of my biggest regrets in life. When I moved away from Korea, I in Korea, we use this messaging app called Kakao Talk instead mm -hmm. of regular texting. And when I moved away as a 16, 17-year-old girl, I lost access to my cacao. And so I was really upset about it for a while, but I returned back to Korea a few years later and I was able to find her again because I just, I looked for the dance studio and she still happened to be teaching there. Mm -hmm. But 
I looked on the very last day of my visit in Korea. And so I didn't actually get a time, get a chance to to talk to her, to, to take her out to coffee or something. And we didn't exchange contact information. And on my most recent trip to Korea in 2020, the dance studio was no longer there. Why did you wait for the last day to contact her? I think it was because my relationship with her was something so beautiful in my memories. I was worried of tarnishing it in some way. Mm-hmm. I was worried I that we just... That. Yeah, and so... But now I wish more than ever that I had reached out earlier, that I still had her contact information. Yeah. Do do you think it's possible to get it back? Yeah, in 2020, I actually reached out to to former dance students to ask if they happened to have her contact information and they didn't. But even though the branch in Ilsan, the city I lived, closed down, or the district, I mean, closed down, Wawa Dance Academy, I think it still exists. And so the next time I go to Korea, I was planning on reaching out. And maybe, maybe I will find her again. And just reading about your relationship with this dance teacher, she was more expressive, which is something which joy in the film as well. Like, you know, they, they both long for, and you obviously, you said that you longed for as well. Do you think, uh, like, w- when I was reading, like, your building relationship with her, something that came to mind, and, and I just want to verify this on, on the podcast, I felt like you're, you were closer to her because she was able to navigate Korean society better, which is the society that you were living in uh, at the time, whilst your parents lacked the tools to to move in society. And you know how you're talking about, like, you have to come to the terms that your parents are human. To me, that 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 hints at this idea of, you know, we glorify or we elevate our parents and then once they don't conform once they don't meet our certain expectations we are immensely disappointed and we are immensely angry do you think because the dance teacher was able to you know speak and act and dress you know accept away in korea in in korean society that you saw her as a parental figure or an authority figure or an older person a role model who you could then like respect I think that definitely contributed to why I did respect her, yes. But I think the reason I was so attached to her was really more of the emotional fulfillment she was able to provide for me. Yeah, the time that I met Kesem, the time that she became somewhat of a pseudo-mother figure for me was in one of the lowest points in my relationship with my own mother. We weren't even talking at the time. We hadn't talked for a few months. And... Kesem was one of the first times in my life that I felt like I could I could trust someone that I could depend on that I could bring my messiness like like the full extent of my emotions and lean on someone else and she would support me until I can move on on my own. Yeah, which is why I think I was so attached to her. She was the one I went to for relationship problems with my grandma and my aunt. And so when I moved to Korea as a teenager, I was was kicked Which out is of still crazy, home. by the way. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a crazy idea, man. <laughs> yeah, it's it makes for a great like fun fact at parties, you know. But yeah, I was not in speaking terms with my parents, and my unhealthy behavior patterns followed me to Korea. Even when we pack our bags and 
even when we pack our bags and move, we still have to bring ourselves with us. So I didn't escape the anger and resentment and that transferred over in my new home life as well. And Kessem was the one that I turned to whenever I did fight with my grandma and my aunt. She was a level-headed force to balance out my teenage pig-headedness when I was more fueled by anger and hormones than logic. Yeah, she would act as like a mediating force. And yeah, she just provided a lot of... Yes, go ahead. No, no, no. Please finish. She was just someone I could really rely on. Yeah. Do you think Joy in in the film, do you think she... Well, Evelyn, her mother, definitely doesn't fit into that Kesem archetype but do you think the father fits into that archetype do you think joy the the daughter who later goes insane and creates different universes anyway once again you're going to think i'm crazy Mm. if you haven't watched this film but um (laughs) do you think she has that in her father you know i don't think the film played too much on on waymond and joy's relationship yeah which is sort of a shame yeah, I think so too. But Wayman, Wayman's philosophy for life definitely influenced Evelyn, who then, like, at the climax, of, the emotional climax of the film, like, embraces Wayman's way of, of to, embraces Wayman's approach to life and then <laughs> connects with joy. I actually, so whenever I watch a film that I really, really like, I always watch, like, a million YouTube reviews on it. And mm-hmm. this idea I cannot take for, I cannot claim credit for, but... Oh, so, it's the internet. Yes, you can. This, everyone, this is <laughs> your idea. We're, we're scrubbing that last idea. part out. <laughs> <laughs> you're right, you're right. This is my idea. I thought of it on my own. <laughs> but yeah, so the everything bagel functions as like a symbol for Joy's nihilism and just just belief that everything in life is utterly meaningless. I, think you know? I know where you're going with this, but yes, but continue. Yeah. <laughs> did you also watch <laughs> I, I probably read it in a comment or or watched the review I, I mean actually review I mean you came up with this so but I came up with it. And, and I, I think I have the same idea but but go on yeah but the everything bagel is just this black huge bagel shaped form that exists in this entirely white dimension wait can um, we explain what the bagel is so, just so the audience has some idea otherwise they're just going to think it's like a bagel in the film joe butpaki claimed that she just put every single thing on the world onto a bagel sesame poppy seeds all breeds of dog joy despair i suppose but Mm -hmm. yeah and it just created this i think what was a black hole right yeah i think it was supposed to look like a black hole and which means she put like every little wayne album on that bagel as well (laughs) (laughs) every type of food fungus everything on that bagel (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah the 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 everything bagel it exists in what i what i call like goddess jobu's dimension an entirely white dimension and then there's just this giant black bagel and waymond his approach to life is symbolized by googly eyes with it's, which is a white circle with a black dot in the middle of it, which is the visual antithesis to the everything bagel. Yeah, and I really liked the the ending scene in part two, Everywhere, where Evelyn puts a googly eye on her forehead 
where her third eye is supposed to be. So it's as if she is finally embracing Wayman's way of fighting, fighting with love and with kindness. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, that was the same idea that that I'd come across, and I think how she resolves the the fights. It's yes, there's the the martial arts aspect as well, but how she like heals people from different dimensions that's how she deals with her demons ultimately that was the most effective way to deal with her daughter as well and yeah i I think that was that was the emotional climax and that was when i was quite gripped which you know once again maybe our comedic taste differs a lot but i found it a a genuine shame when they flipped to the sausage finger world and the wong kai the wong kai world where they're like in dusty hong kong alleyways and he's chatting with basically like her version of Tony Leung. It's like super romantic and stuff. But but the sausage fingers, like it, I was like, oh, I don't want to see sausage fingers. Let's give away from <laughs> I don't want to see barbecue tomato sauce coming out of their mouth. Can can we go yeah. back to her and her daughter? But yeah, uh, but that was quite emotional. And the grandfather Gong Gong actually lets he actually grabs onto her at the very end, which is uh-huh. a marked difference from how he treated her before. You also said you cried like. You cried like, you know, I can't swear, but you cried a lot. So like, yeah, like what was so emotional? And I'm sure that you grafted your life onto the Evelyn Joy situation. So can you just expand why you found it so emotionally gripping? I think the number one scene that's like coming to mind right now is when Evelyn yells at Joy saying, stop calling me Evelyn. I am your mother. Mm-hmm. And she goes on to say that at first, at first, Evelyn does let go of joy in every single dimension. But in the IRS dimension where the story began, she actually turns back around and chases after her daughter and says, you know what, maybe, maybe there was a reason that you were always looking for me. And she chooses joy. She she chooses to chase after joy and this relationship with her daughter. And the scene where she's like running to her daughter is also intercut with images of like planets colliding and things. And it just felt like a visual representation of this idea of an inevitable collision between two forces that were always drawn towards each other, I think. There are a lot of hints throughout the film that Joy actually really wanted to be pursued by her mother. In her first look as Joe Butapaki in the film, when she when she meets Evelyn of the IRS dimension, she is wearing this ridiculous, like Dolly Parton-esque outfit, and there is a lot of glitter underneath her eyes. And there's actually like a single like teardrop gem underneath her right eye. I didn't know. And there's all yeah, I just, I love fashion and makeup. So I paid a lot of attention to these details. But what, what, what fashion aesthetic was that? What, what what did you call it? Oh, Dolly Parton-esque. <laughs> is that like the the Barbie golfer look? Is that what you're talking I just, about? I just, I just made that up because I thought she looked like Dolly Parton in that moment. Um, I guess I, like, like West, yeah, like Western themed. Person? I, I don't even know who that person Dolly is. Dolly Parton? So like, Oh. No, so this is going completely over my head. <laughs> just yeah, just think of like 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 country, like Barbie doll, like anyways. Okay. anyways. <laughs> wearing like the visor hat, like the the, the golf hat. No, I was I thinking, I was thinking of the. 
No, the, the first scene, I actually think she looked a lot like an Asian grandmother. <sighs> okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so okay, to the but, audience, but, it's <laughs> very confusing because she jumps. There are so many different costumes <laughs> that Joy ends up yes, wearing yes. that it's really confusing. Also, at the beginning when you were talking about like the, the IRS universe, you did hear that right, uh, audience. This is about tax fraud. <laughs> this whole film, is, you know, you think it's about emotional depth, about healing family. It's actually about tax fraud. <laughs> <laughs> actually, kind of, yeah. Because at the very end of the film, Evelyn's whole point is that I will just cherish the moments that like, I can make sense of. And she chooses to be fully present in this tax fraud universe. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So yes, it is about tax fraud. But yes, yeah. okay, circling back to like Jobu Tabaki's outfits. Yeah, there's just so many scenes where there is something akin to like tears flowing freely down her face represented through makeup, whether it's through glitter or like an actual like tear-shaped like bedazzlement, rhinestone bedazzlement, whatever, or like pearls around her eyes. Like it always looks like Joy is crying. Mm-hmm. And in the very last outfit she wears in part two, where she is fighting Evelyn in front of the Everything Bagel, the the Picasso esque outfit. <laughs> is that um, the goth, the goth girl outfit? No, it was the the one with the the crazy hair and like the crazy makeup, like 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 it's an like extra eye, like drawn underneath her eyes. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, and. When she is squaring off to like fight Evelyn and she has like her fists up, the fist that is closest to her mother actually has a glove with like a heart shape cut out. All these like visual clues to Joy, yeah, just desperately wanting like this feeling of connection with her mother, I think. I'm assuming that you related a lot to that and that's why you were like, you know, to quote, like, you know, there was a lot of tears shed in the film. (laughs) (laughs) yeah there was a when I write about the night I was kicked out in that essay why I can't get along with my family I I wrote something along the lines of even though it was me pushing my mother away I so desperately wanted her to like hold on to me and to not let me go yeah and so seeing Evelyn hold on to her daughter yeah that touched me a lot and you previously said that your relationship with your parents is a lot better now. How did you mend that bridge? Wait, wrong words. How did you mend that gap? Mend <laughs> <laughs> the bridge. I think it was just a little bit of kindness toward myself, actually. And by that, I mean, like, changing, like, my expectations a little bit, not demanding like absolute perfection from my parents giving myself more space to process my feelings and emotions and yeah just seeing accepting my parents for who they were versus who I wanted them to be and were you the first one to reach out or did they reach out hmm I think it was over the years like a back and forth effort on both on both ends okay I had one more thing I wanted to ask about your book so we talk a lot about the family aspect and that's obviously because this film is so centered around family you talk about a lot more things than just that you talk about uh 
K-pop, you talk about Yellow Fever, a whole range of Asian. I keep I keep trying to not say I'm Asian American or Western Asian, and that brings me to something that I guess I'm quite passionate about, something that I think a lot about. I think a lot of the Asian Western literature is good at identifying issues that our community faces. And I think your book is also fantastic at doing that. And like I said, there are some quotes um, that when I when I read it, my reaction is is also, you know, very similar. Did I actually read out the? Did I end up reading out the quote that I really like, or did I end up not reading? Uh, I don't think so. Not yet. Okay, so audience, I will grace you with a little snippet from Tiger Rabbit, <laughs> which really really connected to me, and and then I'll link this to the question. You write. My truth is that I'm so angry about this systems of oppression. White society lied to minorities about the American dream. We were led to believe that if we tried hard enough, that we too could make it in this country. We'd only been taught to see the American dream, not the American reality. Thus, we saw an inability to progress as a result of our own personal failures, instead of realizing that there were systems designed to keep us in our place. And that. I connect so much with that. I might have mentioned this to you previously, but you know, during high school, didn't have the best experience. You know, surprise, surprise, and、mm. really believe this idea that like the world centered around white ideas or, or Western people, white people, was the norm, and I、mm-hmm. constantly felt like a, a fringe on the margins, and I felt like that was completely legitimate and completely normal. Which is the most toxic aspect of it? Like, right? You self delude yourself、mm-hmm. into believing this. And once I realized that, like, w- once I just studied the history and once I learned more about my name, I'll give you, I'll give you、uh, an example. So my last name is Ching, which to me was not weird、mm-hmm. until other people started saying Ching Chong, and then I felt there was like a sense of like, wait, why the hell am I named that? And then、mm-hmm. my way to Recover from that. My way to defend myself was to actually find out what it means. So Ching or Chang in Mandarin translates the journey, which I think is beautiful. And and I find self knowledge and and self teaching like a way to fight against this idea that like you're not enough and and just how you're portrayed. But that that being said, there is this system that we're put into, and the system. Glorifies certain demographics, and it does not do that to other demographics.、Mm-hmm. And as I said, beautiful quote,、uh, something that I really related to. And my question、mm. is, where do we go on from here? And you end your book with a very similar sentiment. We have identified a lot of these issues. How do we, as a community, then progress from just identifying issues, which makes us? Gives it perpetually keeps us in the victim mindset, which yes we ha- we have been you know victims and especially our parents have been victims in many senses. But how do we progress? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you. And to answer that question, first to just give like a little bit like more context. I think minorities in the United States. Instead of being truly accepted, we are simply tolerated. And the definition of tolerance is. Allowing something to exist despite actively disliking it, and so we feel like a perpetual foreigner, always ostracized in some way. And 
this eventually starts taking like a mental toll. And I think the psychological health minorities is also something that desperately needs redress in this country. But there's not much that we minorities can do if it's just like one voice and like every like few thousand voices that speaks up. I think for me, what I think the next path is, is for Asian Americans as a whole to develop like a much stronger political identity. I think the political identity of my community is vastly underdeveloped, but I do believe that there are a lot of like, what I like to call like sleeper cell Asian Americans that are kind of like neutral, but... Sleeper cell, isn't that a terminology usually reserved for like jihad or terrorism? <laughs> that was, okay, yes, that was a very terrible... <laughs> <laughs> You know, the FBI is going to listen to this and like instantly they're going to crack down. <laughs> they're going to crack down on us. Sleeper oh cell God. agents? Like, that's it. We're getting, Ooh, dream is getting kicked out. Man. We're getting kicked out. That's it, man. If they hear sleeper cell agents, that's <laughs> it. <laughs> yes. Maybe, mayhaps not a good analogy. <laughs> what, what I'm trying to say is <laughs> there are people who have yet to have their political awakening. Yes. Yes, I I agree. Who who are asleep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes. You know, we can, you know, build that up and I I actually think this is this is a real shame. But the huge rise in Asian hate crimes, and by huge I'm talking like and I got a statistic for you. On the first of February this year, so a few months ago, this center for uh, center called Center for Hate and Extremism released a statistic that Asian hate crimes rose up by three hundred and thirty nine percent in the last year, and mm. that's abhorrent because the people are targeting the weakest people in our community, which is pathetic. And I feel like this is really destroyed the myth of model minority because mm. they tolerated the asians us and then as soon as and but you know this isn't just chinese people like there are korean people japanese people thai people vietnamese people getting punched and getting attacked it really destroys the model minority myth and i think this has been a political lightning lightning rod for Asians to unite. And I do think we are becoming more political. And may, maybe Andrew Yang isn't the best example, but he is one example, right? Right now, he, he is one of the few examples. And I do think as Asian America, Western Asian, become more, I guess, immersed into the society, there is a belief that they should be politically involved, which is an idea that our parents or my parents, and I'll probably speak on, on your behalf as well, they didn't understand the politics and they basically left the politics out for everyone else. But politics is power. And if you don't have mm-hmm. a foot in politics, you do not have power. Yeah. My my next door neighbor in Florida actually ran for the mayor of Oviedo, which is the small town that I live in. Mm-hmm. And while I, I was helping him like canvas and just volunteering. And I remember making small talk with another one of the volunteers about my book about how it was about Asian American advocacy. And because we're both 
helping a politician, like naturally, like the topic of politics came up. And I remember this man said to me, yeah, like you Asians are, you're not represented. So you just don't matter. And he didn't say that as an insult, but just as just a fact. And he's right. Yeah, we, even though Asians are one of the biggest ethnic groups, like in the US, we are so incredibly underrepresented in positions of leadership, like across like all boards, like government, law, academia, we don't see ourselves in positions of leadership. So others don't see us that way either. Mm -hmm. I think your book has been firstly, just fantastic and a joy to read. Thank you. And I think it's really good at highlighting a lot, a lot of the a lot of the issues and as i said a sentiment that you left off is you know for a lot for a long time asian literature has highlighted these problems but now it's up to us as a community to actually do something and that means responsibility that means effort that means being vulnerable and putting yourself out it's not easy and i think culturally a lot of us are averse to that but we've seen the repercussions of not doing that and I really think these this explosion in anti-Asian crimes, these hate crimes, has forever destroyed the model minority myth, or hopefully it destroys the model minority myth that we can silently sit by, you know, let other people decide, and we just you know earn money and send our children to like good schools, because mm-hmm. I just don't think that's enough, and I, I think we deserve a little more. I think for the longest time, my parents instilled within me this idea of just keeping my head down just surviving. But we did that. And then we were attacked. So clearly that method does not work anymore. And one of the messages I wrote in my book is that I hope minorities in this country realize that they matter, that their voices matter. And it really doesn't matter what it is that they're saying or what message they're trying to convey. What's more important than ever is just for for Asian American voices to just speak up. Now Mm -hmm. is the time. Mm -hmm. Now is the time. Thank you. Thank you for jumping on. Thank you for discussing your book. And, you know, I had a lot of fun talking about this. Do you have any last messages that you want to share with our audience? Um, yes. For the, to, to celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, once my ebook is released, it will be available just till the end of May for 99 cents. So, Buy my book, please. <laughs> and how about the physical copies? The physical copies should be available in both Amazon and Barnes and Nobles in June. Mm-hmm. Yes. Awesome. All right. Thank you. I've said this already, but go and get yourself a copy and learn about issues which are often marginalized, which often don't get much screen time. And hopefully this will move our community forward. So Thank you for jumping on. Thank you, Stanley. And I will catch you on the flip. <laughs> Bye. Take it easy. Thank you for tuning in to Safety Lost with Stanley Ching. If you enjoyed this, then please leave a rating or a comment. I hope you're leaving with a new idea and make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and other places that can be found in the description.